0: Do you have peer approval?
1: I have never asked my peers whether they approve. Why not? I don't
2: care. Welcome to episode four of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host, Alan Woolen. Today we're going to talk about one of Thomas Sowell's essays, which must have been very controversial at the time he wrote it. It's from his 2005 book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals, and the essay is called The Real History of Slavery. Regular listeners of this podcast know that one of the things I love about Sowell is his ability to reframe a familiar subject in a totally fresh and oftentimes unexpected way. Well, his essay on the history of slavery is no exception to this pattern. Many of the claims Sowell makes in this essay, and many of the conclusions he comes to, are so contrary to popular belief and accepted wisdom on this subject that I feel I cannot tackle this essay alone. So today I've invited two scholars onto the show, to actually debate Sowell's essay. One scholar is taking the position that Sowell gets it largely right about slavery. The other scholar takes the position that Sowell gets it largely wrong. My goal is that we hear both sides of the story argued by people who not only have studied this issue in depth, but who also feel strongly about their positions and defend them in earnest. The first scholar in our debate is Wilfred Riley, associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University. He holds a PhD in political science from Southern Illinois University and a law degree from the University of Illinois. Dr. Riley has so far published two books, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, published in 2020, and Hate Crime Hoax. How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, published in 2019. He is also a co host of the Cut the Bull podcast, which focuses on culture and current events. Professor Riley will be taking the position that Sowell gets it largely correct on the subject of slavery. Wilfred Riley, welcome back to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Glad to be here. Our second debater is Charles Boyd, professor of history at Georgia State University. He has written extensively on history and politics, with an emphasis on American slavery, abolitionism, and civil rights. His master's thesis, which he is currently expanding into a book, focuses on abolitionist support for interracial marriage. He is also the host of the Minority of One podcast, which focuses on history and politics. Professor Boyd will be taking the position that Sowell gets it largely wrong on the subject of slavery. Charles Boyd, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast.
0: Glad to be here. Uh, Thank you, Alan, for hosting me. And uh, Dr. Riley, thank you for agreeing to this debate. Sure.
2: Before we get into the actual debate, I would like to briefly summarize Sowell's essay for our listeners. I strongly encourage you to read or listen to the entire essay before you listen to this summary and the debate which follows. I have put links in the show notes to both the full written essay, as well as to the audiobook reading of the essay, which is available for free on YouTube. Trust me on this one. You are going to want to read Sowell's essay because it is a great example of Sowell teaching us not just what to think about an issue, but also how to think about it. In addition, keep this in mind while you are listening to our summary. Sowell's 39-page essay is itself a summary of the history of slavery, so we are summarizing a summary. And no summary of this deeply penetrating essay can possibly do it justice, so please read the original Sowell essay yourself. With that caveat, here's our summary. Sowell starts his essay provocatively by saying that slavery was way worse than most people know because most people know only about the slavery which was practiced in the Western Hemisphere for 300 years and not about the slavery which was practiced for thousands of years all over the rest of the world. Sowell continues hitting hard when he points out that slavery was not fundamentally, quote, Africans and their descendants enslaved by Europeans and their descendants in the Western Hemisphere, end quote. Rather, says Sowell, slavery was practiced in many different forms over the centuries, including Europeans enslaving other Europeans, Muslims enslaving Christians and Africans, Africans enslaving other Africans, and Indigenous Peoples of the Western Hemisphere enslaving other Indigenous Peoples. Slavery was common, says Sowell, in China, India, and most other countries. Sowell then makes one of his hardest-hitting points, that for most of human history, slavery had nothing to do with race or racism. According to Sowell, most slaves were of the same race as their enslavers for the simple reason that the technology and wealth did not exist to transport people of another race around the world. Sowell makes the case that instead of being about race or racism, slavery was about vulnerability of certain groups and about others taking advantage of them because they could. For Sowell, slavery was not caused by racism. If anything, racism was caused by slavery the other way around. Sowell makes this explicit when he says, quote, Far from being targeted by Europeans for racial reasons, as some have claimed, Africa was resorted to as a source of large supplies of slaves only after centuries of Europeans enslaving other Europeans had been brought to an end by the consolidation of nations and empires on the European continent, by internal shifts from slavery to serfdom in much of Europe and by the Catholic Church's pressures against enslaving fellow Christians. Sowell then turns his attention to another surprising, almost shocking argument. That for most of human history, no one, not even the great religious leaders or moral philosophers, had any issue with slavery or thought it was wrong. And that the first society to develop a moral revulsion against slavery was Britain in the 1700s. According to Sowell, in the 1800s, Britain used the power of its empire and its navy and began a crusade to rid the entire world of slavery against the bitter opposition of Africans, Arabs, Asians, and others. Britain's moral crusade to abolish slavery around the world met with success, according to Sowell, only because it had gunpowder weapons first. Wait, stop. Did he just say gunpowder was the main reason slavery got abolished around the world? Okay, you got my attention now. Sowell says, quote, Slavery did not die out quietly of its own accord. It went down fighting to the bitter end. And it lost only because Europeans had gunpowder weapons first. End quote. Sowell gives many examples in his essay of how the gradual abolition of slavery around the globe met with resistance by non-European peoples, and how this moral drama was played on a world stage, and not primarily in the American South, as is commonly believed today. Just when you thought his essay couldn't get more baffling and surprising, Sowell introduces you to the counterintuitive notion that some communities viewed their enslavement as a benefit, they didn't want to give up. Let me quote Sowell. Quote, As of 1891, the Imperial Palace of Turkey purchased eleven slave girls for its harem, all white women, from a region near the Caucasus known as Circassia. Not only the Turks accepted such slavery, so did the Circassians. Mothers often groomed their daughters for this role and sold them into what was considered to be a desirable situation, at least by comparison with what was available in Circassia. British Foreign Secretary Palmerston said, quote, The only complaint we have ever heard from the Circassians has been against our attempts to stop the traffic. End quote. Sowell turns his attention to the African slave trade and makes some truly remarkable claims. Number one. West Africa was a major slave-trading region way before the Europeans arrived. Number two. Africans were enslaving fellow Africans for years before, selling some of them to Arabs and Europeans and keeping some of the slaves for themselves. Number three. Even at the peak of the Atlantic slave trade, Africans kept more slaves for themselves than they sent to the Western Hemisphere. Number four. Slavery in Africa continued well into the 20th century. Sowell devotes several pages in his essay to discussing the African slave trade, which sent slaves to the Islamic world, and how this slave trade was even larger than the trade to North America, and oftentimes more gruesome. This slave trade consisted mostly of women and girls to be used in harems in Arab countries, but also included men who were castrated to be used as eunuchs in those harems. The slave population in Islamic countries did not reproduce inside those societies because of the stark sex imbalance among the slaves there and the fact that of the few male slaves imported, most were eunuchs and could not have children. Sowell's essay stops abruptly at this point and pivots to an exploration of the moral dimensions of slavery. He addresses many issues which are still controversial and hotly contested to this day. Sowell makes the following claims. Number one. The belief that slavery was morally wrong was only present in the West. All other societies viewed slavery as so normal and everyday that they saw no need to explain or justify it. Number two. It was only the West which abolished slavery, both at home and abroad, through imperialistic behavior backed by overwhelming military force. Number three. British and other European societies' crusade to banish slavery from every corner of the earth was undertaken purely on moral and religious grounds, and not out of any pecuniary self-interest often at great cost to those crusading societies. Number four. Western leaders faced a moral dilemma. They knew slavery was wrong, but there was no agreement politically on what to do with the millions of slaves already living in Western societies. This led to many astonishing moral contradictions. For example, at a time when slave ownership, as well as the buying and selling of slaves, were perfectly legal in America, it was nevertheless a capital offense punishable by execution to import new slaves into the country. Number five. The range of opinions on how to deal with slaves already in the United States ran the gamut. From keeping them enslaved in perpetuity On one end of the spectrum to freeing them immediately on the other end, with some in the middle believing the best course of action was to force expatriate the former slaves back to Africa. Many feared a race war would result were there to be a massive emancipation of African slaves with no concrete plan in place on how to integrate them as free men into the larger society.
3: Sowell says this. Today, slavery is too often discussed as an abstract question with an easy answer, leading to sweeping condemnations of those who did not reach that easy answer in their own time. In 19th century America especially, there was no alternative that was not traumatic, including both the continuation of slavery and the ending of it in the manner in which it was in fact ended by the Civil War, at a cost of one life for every six slaves freed many problems can be made simple but only by leaving out the complications which those in the midst of these problems cannot so easily escape with a turn of a phrase as those who look back on them in later centuries can number six
2: while it may be easy for us in the year 2021 to look back at slave ownership and harshly judge anyone who kept slaves centuries ago it was not always easy or even legal for individual
3: slave owners to simply grant their slaves freedom. Sowell says, Abstract moral decisions are much easier to make on paper or in a classroom in later centuries than in the midst of the dilemmas actually faced by those living in very different circumstances, including serious dangers. Number seven. Sowell makes the counterintuitive
2: claim that slavery... While it may have made some individual slaveholders wealthy, actually kept the overall society much poorer than it would have been without the practice. Number eight. So we'll ask the question, why the history of slavery is so grossly misrepresented today? And he answers his own question with the claim that, quote, the ability to score ideological points against American society or Western civilization, or to induce guilt and thereby extract benefits from the white population today, are greatly enhanced by making enslavement appear to be a peculiarly American or a peculiarly white crime. End quote. Sowell believes this falsification of history
3: is counterproductive for both whites and blacks, he says. In the United States, and no doubt some other societies, one of the major psychological legacies of slavery has been a sense of shame and resentment among the black population and a sense of guilt among the white population. The reiterated depiction of enslavement as a peculiarly black experience falsely makes this seem to be a uniquely shameful fate to which a particular race submitted requiring for some of their descendants compensatory bombast from themselves and, if possible, compensatory benefits to be extracted from others. To whites, the false depiction of the history of slavery makes some feel uniquely guilty and responsible for the current misfortunes of blacks. Such attitudes, and the many cross-currents they generate, are hardly the framework for a rational discussion or resolution of today's social issues. Sowell
2: ends his essay with a powerful warning disguised as an observation about the importance of truly thinking about things. Quote, It was not because people thought slavery was right that it persisted for thousands of years. It persisted largely because people did not think about the rightness or wrongness of it at all. That such an institution could last so long unchallenged is a chilling example of what can happen when people Simply do not think. End quote. So that ends our summary of Sowell's essay, The Real History of Slavery. Before we begin our debate, I'd like to offer the following personal thoughts. I'm not a professional historian. I have no easy way to personally verify the facts presented by Sowell in his essay, though I do have a general trust that Sowell took the time to verify them himself. I'm hoping our debaters will point out any inaccuracies in Sowell's presentation of the facts. The reason I chose this essay as the first one to subject to a debate on the podcast is because I find this subject to be of utmost importance to us as Americans today. We face a stark choice. On the one hand, Do we view our own history of slavery with a sense of shame and embarrassment, as many contemporary intellectuals would like us to do? Or, in contrast, do we accept and embrace Sowell's framing of the worldwide history of slavery with a sense of pride and unabashed collective self-respect that our ancestors led a moral crusade and bloody war to abolish the institution of slavery, both in America and throughout the world. When it comes to slavery, are we villains or are we heroes? Or are we not even entitled to feel either shame or pride about the actions of people who died long before we were born? With that important question in mind, I open the floor to our esteemed debaters. Okay, so you guys listened to my summary of Dr. Sowell's history of slavery. You know, I guess if I had to summarize it in an elevator pitch, I would say that Thomas Sowell is making the case that slavery has been around for thousands of years and that it was really Western society which brought it to an end and that instead of criticizing the United States and other Western countries, we should almost be thanking them for bringing about the end of slavery, which is very you know sort of a counterintuitive position. You know in today's times we hear mostly criticism against countries like the United States for continuing slavery as long as it did. I think Dr. Sowell's making the case that we should be complimenting, appreciating and thanking countries like America for ending slavery. So that I think is a fair assessment of Thomas Sowell's position and I'd like to open the floor up to uh, debate with two people who may uh, disagree with each other on that. Uh, So why don't we open the floor up for uh, Wilfred Riley to talk for about six minutes uh, on uh, his position on on this issue.
1: All right, so the theme of the conversation or the debate today, as I understand it, is whether Tom Sowell got it mostly right in his famous essay about slavery. And I expect an enjoyable back and forth. Neither of us is hostile. I'm sure there are many good targeted points my opponent might make about, for example, the hereditary nature of American slavery. But as an empirically minded social scientist, I think the answer to that question, you know, mostly right, a good piece is just clearly yes. So Sol's central point in the article, and he states this in, I believe, paragraph two, is that when we think of slavery, we think of the oppression of black Americans. Or at most about a primarily or entirely Western institution. We think roots and time on the cross. Uh, and in my experience, this claim rings very true. I mean, teaching at a solid, in fact, historically Black institution, I've repeatedly heard students respond to claims like, you know, the, the USA or the West ended slavery with, well, who started slavery around the world? Whole categories of objects, as we've recently seen, nooses, whips, chains are associated almost exclusively with Black Americans by the majority of modern Americans. And in contrast to this viewpoint, Sol makes a whole series of points that I don't necessarily see easy rebuttals to. Um, The most obvious is that slavery existed literally around the world for almost all of history. And this is uncontested. I mean, beginning in the West, slavery, including things like pedophilia, the underground fustarium, the abuse of female slave concubines, was universal in ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, As great a philosopher as Aristotle wrote a lengthy defense of the idea that some people were born to be slaves. The population of ancient Athens contained more slaves than free citizens. And obviously I focus on these societies because they laid some of the groundwork for ours, but much the same was true on every continent. The Muslim world over the years was perhaps particularly active in the slave trade, Over the centuries, far more Africans were shipped out of the African continent by the Arab slave trade than by the Atlantic slave trade, although honesty compels me to admit the latter had higher peaks in some years. Uh, The Arab states also carried on a thriving and almost forgotten slave trade in whites, uh, who were called European dogs, often used as galley slaves. This quote-unquote Barbary slave trade involved close to 2 million transactions over its history. Many involving sales, obviously, to Moorish or black masters. And this, this went on for a very long time. The Zanj Wars, again, almost forgotten, between Arabs and civilized Bantu peoples who had been taken as, as slaves were fought before 1000 A.D. So Sol points this out. And he also points out that it, it's not true that Western or American slavery was uniquely abusive. Um, Afro-centrist scholars, including some good friends of mine, will often try to present African war as a sort of friendly football-style contest. Uh, that's simply not true. Shaka Zulu's Mufakane Wars killed roughly 2 million people, and it's particularly not true in the context of slavery. Uh, in reality, slaves taken by Arab slavers or by African ones like Tipu Tip were often castrated. There was a thriving market for eunuchs in the Middle East. The life expectancy of a galley slave was about two years. It's true fewer Africans entered truly hereditary bondage in the Arab world than in the West, but that's largely because so few lived to breed. Uh, Slavery in the New World, where of course it also existed, was often even worse. Uh, Center-right academics like Marvin Harris have argued that warfare and slavery were often literally a source for meat, for mighty but protein-starved peoples like the Aztecs. Uh, Whether or not Harris exaggerates a bit, I think that's possible, there's no doubt that 30,000 or so captured warriors were sacrificed annually at the major Mexica festivals. Uh, Seoul goes on to argue, he, he points all this out in detail that's sometimes painful to read, and he goes on to argue that for all our flaws, it was largely the West that ended slavery. And this is also something that's empirically true. At the most basic level, there were few or no civilized African, Native American, Muslim, or South Asian societies at least that I found researching for this contest, that had effective bans on slavery or slave trading prior to Western contact. With the exception of some trends in Chinese philosophy, my understanding is that slavery became a moral issue basically for the first time in the Enlightenment West, where it conflicted with the idea that all humans have scientifically or religiously based natural rights. Now, this did produce the worst form of racism as a direct response. The terrible question, basically, are blacks human? But it also produced William Lloyd Garrison and John Brown, names we remember today. And there, there is no doubt, this is political science now, that we saw a very steady progression of anti-slavery activism in the West from about 1750 forward. For example, the USA banning the slave trade in 1808, when it wasn't yet possible to ban the institution itself. The use of the British Navy to actively blockade the African coast at great cost. Uh, the reaction of most powerful nations of color to this was, in fact, resistance. Um, Again, this is not extensively remembered today, but states like Dahomey, uh, powerful black kingdoms that made a substantial profit from the slave trade, actually appeared before the Queen and King of England to petition that the trade be allowed to continue. There were wars fought with Arab and Turkish descent states to allow the slave trade to continue when the West attempted to stop it. So I I notice we're moving up on six minutes here. In one final sentence, I'm not sure I'd go so far as a black man as to. Thank all of the founding fathers for their attitudes on race or something like that. But Sol's main points that slavery existed everywhere, that it was brutal everywhere and that our culture stopped it. Those ring true.
2: Thank you for that, Charles. You've got three minutes to uh, cross-examine
0: Professor Riley. Why don't you start? I would certainly not contest the notion that most Native American societies had forced labor prior to European arrival, but didn't Orlando Patterson find uh, in the same book where he debunked a lot of the ideas about slavery being a uniquely Western phenomena, didn't Patterson find that in what's now the United States, slavery was generally not hereditary with uh, among tribes outside of the West Coast?
1: I think that that's a largely accurate conclusion. Now, when we look at One of the points that I make pretty often when I teach is that everyone that existed prior to perhaps the past hundred years would have struck us as a savage. Uh, The term used utterly non-racially here. Women didn't get the right to vote in the USA until 1920. So many native tribes that did break battle captives and use them as slaves would allow their children to become free. But there, there are a couple of questions there. One would be, what is the percentage of Native American battle captives that survived long enough to have healthy children? I recently finished reading the book Scalp Dance about the practice of torture and high plains warfare, and I I would assume that rate is extraordinarily low. I mean, when you look at the larger and more stable native societies like the Mexica, the Aztecs, I mean, the majority of slaves that were taken were taken in essentially a sacrificial role, whether or not you, you believe the cannibalism narrative. I mean, those people essentially lived long enough to make it to the top of the temple and die. So there are different sorts of brutality here. I think that the hereditary nature of Western slavery is actually a point on your side. But I I don't think that the practice of slavery in Native communities was especially gentle. I'm I'm not sure whether I'd rather be dead very early on or see my children continue my bondage. It's definitely a Sophie's choice.
0: Uh, well, it seems like we actually have a lot of common ground here, but just to clarify sort of your position on this, be, because the, when I said the thing about the United States, I was very careful to specific, specifically refer to societies north of the Mexican border because societies south of the border, I think, tended to have sort of more hierarchy and more you know, systems of slavery. But you'd agree that uh, the, the issue of uh, human sacrifice, which obviously would prevent many slaves from uh, passing that condition onto their children, you'd agree that that... Is was not generally a, a common practice among most tribes uh, north of the Mexican border. You know, I mean, I've heard the Pawnee did it, but, but you'd agree that most tribes didn't do that regularly enough to account for the deaths of most of the battle captives.
1: Sure. And I, I think that we're talking about different forms of brutality, like the more, quote unquote, advanced a society is a term I actually have some issues with. The less initially brutal it is likely to be, and again, reading the descriptions of Native treatment of initial captives is pretty sobering, but the more evil in long-term fashion it may be. So yes, among certain North American Native tribes, if you lived long enough to have children, they were probably free, but that's that's a hell of a qualifier.
2: Why
0: don't you take seven minutes to present your case? The number of unsupportable claims that Dr. Soul makes about slavery, are enough to render his overall essay false. Firstly, Soul states that in Western society, quote, the principal impetus for the abolition of slavery came first from very conservative religious activists, people who would today be called the religious right. Among white abolitionists, Northeastern Unitarians, Quakers, and Congregationalists were very overrepresented, and these were then and are now socially and theologically liberal faith traditions. So Sol's first point about the religious right is about sort of abolitionists being an analog for them is fundamentally false. Many Black abolitionists were traditional evangelicals, but many others such as Sojourner Truth, Francis Harper, Peter Smith, and eventually Frederick Douglass were socially and theologically liberal and supported causes such as feminism. In Britain, Quakers were also overrepresented among abolitionists. Now, one of the most prominent examples, Elizabeth Hayrick, championed other liberal causes, such as ending the death penalty and clashed with more moderate evangelical anti-slavery activists due to supporting both immediate emancipation and due to violating sort of the traditional gender norms of the era. Secondly, Seoul fails to give proper credit to black people for doing much of the work to achieve abolition within the West. Yet William Lloyd Garrison was persuaded to support immediate emancipation largely by Black abolitionists. In 1834, three quarters of his subscribers were Black. White abolitionists and anti-slavery politicians were vital in achieving emancipation, but they did so along with Black people. Black revolutionaries in Haiti banned slavery decades before the British outlawed it. A massive 1831 slave rebellion in Jamaica helped frighten some of the more conservative British politicians into backing emancipation to avoid another larger rebellion. Had black people not taken part in fighting for their own emancipation, how much longer would slavery have been legal in Western nations? Third, Soul criticizes white abolitionists for being too dogmatic, uncompromising, and naive by demanding immediate emancipation. This is the kind of moral relativism that Sol usually dislikes, because if slavery is inherently wrong, then owning slaves or allowing slavery is always wrong, requiring one to support immediate universal emancipation. Abolitionist efforts to come up with practical plans for emancipation, uh, immediate emancipation, I should say, were generally rejected. When some abolitionists proposed that as a stepping stone after immediate emancipation, but before integration into the broader free society, ex-slaves could have a system of apprenticeship, this was still rejected as too radical. When abolitionists like Wendell Phillips proposed reparations to lift ex-slaves out of poverty, this was rejected also abolitionists were not to blame for the racism, callousness, and greed of 19th century America, especially when so many tried hard to make the North more welcoming to Black people by fighting segregation there. Fourth, Soul misunderstands the views and actions of the founding fathers on slavery. The Constitution offered ironclad federal protection for slavery, requiring that runaway slaves be returned to owners. Madison bragged that this clause gave slaveholders new protection and that the Constitution would prevent the federal government from ever banning slavery. Jefferson's opposition to the slave trade is not evidence of his anti-slavery views, which he did not have, because many Virginia slaveholders opposed the African slave trade because they felt that importing more slaves from Africa would increase the supply and therefore lower the market value of their slaves. When one of Jefferson's slaves, James Hubbard, ran away and was recaptured, Jefferson ordered them whipped. Sowell argues that Jefferson's debts prevented him from freeing most of his slaves, but these debts were caused largely by well-documented, very extravagant spending that could easily have been curtailed had emancipation been a priority. Washington is stated to have secretly freed slaves in Philadelphia. In fact, Washington rotated slaves in and out of Pennsylvania to get around a state law, which was supposed to free slaves who spent more than six months there there is no need to judge Washington by the standards of 2021, just by the standards of the 1780 Pennsylvania law he broke to keep his slaves. Fifth, Seoul dismisses slavery as the root cause of higher rates of non-nuclear families among Black people than white people, partly by stating that Black out-of-wedlock birth rates have gone up since the 1960s. But this fails to distinguish between root causes and exacerbating factors. Root causes explain, why aggregate racial disparities in non-nuclear homes between Black and white people exist in the first place. Even if welfare is the sole reason that Black non-nuclear household rates have gone up since 1965, it cannot be the root cause for why more Black children than white children live in non-nuclear homes, given that that disparity existed long before federal welfare programs. Enslaved children were far likelier than white children at the time to live with one or no parent. Historian Stephen Mintz estimates that depending upon the criteria you, that you use, anywhere from 35 to a full 50% of enslaved children had one or both parents absent. This is because owners could separate families any time and there was no penalty for sexual abuse. Sixth, Soul claims that descendants of slaves today are better off because of slavery. Now, even if one accepts the false, I would I would dare to say absurd claim that modern black people are better off due to their ancestors being kidnapped and forcibly brought here. Even if you accept that false claim, it is still obviously true that they would be much better off today had they been freed upon arriving in America. Every day that slavery went on after Africans were brought here created greater problems for their descendants. Thus, the question is not are African-Americans better off today due to slavery than they would be in Africa? But rather, the question is, would African-Americans be better off now if they had ended up in America but not been enslaved? Conservatives bring up successful African immigrants to claim Black people have equal opportunities today. Now, you cannot simultaneously claim this, but also claim that the only alternative to slavery was living in Africa perpetually. The fact that outlawing slavery in America made slave descendants slaves descendants better off and not worse off showcases the need to distinguish between the fact that Black people ended up here, the way in which they ended up here, and what happened for generations after they ended up here. In sum, Soul's essay includes numerous (laughs) oversimplifications and flawed arguments. So, Professor Riley, would you
2: like three minutes to cross-examine Professor Boyd?
1: Sure. Yeah, my my first question, I mean, a lot of this gets into the detailed and convoluted nature of the academic literature in both history and poli-sci. I mean, what what did Jefferson and Washington really think about slavery? It's a fascinating question. I guess my first broad question would be, do you disagree with most of the core themes of this essay, as uh, I believe Dr. Soles identified them, that slavery was universal? You know, we certainly were no princes here, but was extremely brutal around the world and was largely ended by the West, in particular Britain, but certainly also the USA. I mean, would would you take issue well, with any of first that? First
0: of all, I would point out that a lot of what Dr. Soul says about the history of slavery in non-Western nations are things that have been written about pretty extensively by uh, academics. Many of them uh, on the left, for example, he quotes David Bryan Davis sure. about African slavery. David Bryan Davis was a self-described leftish Democrat, very prestigious historian, got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama before he died. But the I think the broader issues, so he's saying a lot of stuff that, like most of the accurate stuff in there, are things that you can already find out about elsewhere in which the the fact that they are not as well known is largely due to all too much of the public not knowing a lot about American history, let alone world history. Now, sure. I think that the 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 reason that I focused on what may seem like minutiae is that yep. first of all, these 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 problems when you take them together are fairly large, and second of all, I think that they speak to an overarching problem with the essay, which is that with all due respect to Soul, because I do have a lot of respect for Doctor Soul, but a lot the overall thrust of the essay does involve. Essentially rational, rationalizing, sort of trying to explain away, steelmanning the sort of unwillingness of most white people in the West to support immediate emancipation, or at least in America prior to the Civil War, and the unwillingness of many white Americans in that era to even free their own slaves or take any kind of anti-slavery actions. Now, with regards to the West, this is actually one of my, I touched on this earlier, but this is actually one of my main criticisms with the essay. There is very little attention played to Haiti here even though Haiti banned slavery for being generous about 30 years before Britain did. And you could say that Haiti didn't have much. And it's interesting because he references the bloodbath that followed the emancipation of slaves in Haiti. But what he doesn't mention is that the bloodbath happened because the French wouldn't free them. You know, they, they, they caused the French caused the bloodbath by not freeing the slaves. Now, the other thing with Haiti is you could say it didn't have a big global impact. The problem is that Haiti was a major inspiration to abolitionists worldwide, uh, Wendell Phillips, who I quoted earlier, actually gave a speech about uh, Louverture. You know, the uh, Haitian revolutionary leader, to refute the idea of white supremacy.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, well said. But I mean, I, I think my basic point comes back to Soul's goal here was writing a, a lengthy public intellectual essay that would put a lot of this this information into the public eye. Again, if you prefer, and I, I think just read really those major parts. I mean, slavery existed everywhere. Slavery is a brutal process. And the West largely ended the practice of slavery. I, I think those those survive. So I don't want to get repetitious here, but I think my core point with this essay is that it, according to the author, has a set of core themes. One of those is, of course, this has been said before by great men and women of the right and left, but slavery existed around the world. Saul so wanted to emphasize that in precise detail and did so. Two, slavery was a brutal praxis wherever it existed. I mean, I, I don't really think that things like galley slavery are generally discussed in great detail in the Western left. And third, the West ended slavery. And I think that those core points of the essay, although my opponent's critiques are largely accurate, soul writes from the right. But I mean, and it, the goal of an academic conversation like this one is to get to the truth. Of course, you can say if you know, soul comes from the right, Tim Weiss from the left, so on down the line. But I think those those three core points survive extraordinarily well. Slavery was a worldwide institution, equally brutal in most places, ended by the Western world. The Haiti point, I mean, one obvious response is that it wasn't Haiti blockading the African coast or the Tripoli ports. I mean, the Haitian revolution was symbolic in that it showed that a slave order could be destroyed, but it was countries like Britain, later France, the USA that actually did so. And to some extent, you have to give this same analysis to the argument that it was black abolitionists that, that truly overturned slavery in the USA I mean, if, if we're being realistic about this, black people couldn't vote until 1865. It was through the actions of white allies of good intent that that really all of this happened. So to me, the core points survive. two additional uh, comments relevant to uh, what I think were my, my opponent's strongest points. One, Ezri, the root causes argument of a black family collapse. I, I think it's important to look at the actual figures here. The raw data. It it is definitely true that there has been a gap, usually about two to one, between black illegitimacy, if you prefer, rates and white, you know, illegitimacy out of wedlock birth rates. The issue, though, is the nearly 1,000% increase that occurred at the start of the modern welfare system. So, as Walter Williams, another great right leaning African American economist, has pointed out, the black out of wedlock birth rate in 1938 was maybe 10%. As I recall, it gives that as a high end estimate. The white rate was 4%, although either you or Dr. Boyd might correct me. So, there's a gap there, but the rates right now are 72% and 40%. So, the initial gap, which is four percentage points, five percentage points certainly may be due to past racism. But the question on the minds of most center-right quants would be, why have we seen this massive increase when this particular social practice changed or this new set of institutions arrived? Now, uh, another point in terms of the idea that reparations may be owed, um, the sort of dismissal of soul's claim that Black people are better off in America than they would be in Africa, that's to some extent, just empirically accurate. As a black man, I find it a bit callous. But I mean, I recently, for a paper, looked at the GDPs of major African states. And even if you're talking about PPP, purchasing power parity, GDP for, say, Ghana, that's perhaps $10,000. The black American household income in the USA is $45,000. We're ahead of a number of white groups. So the only possible scenario where the old racial wars were not an advantage to people that are in eight genera- five generations removed from slavery is this sort of hypothetical where black people came to America in 1800, but weren't slaves or opposed to the white dominated country. And that is, that is simply not realistic due to US immigration policy of nothing else. The black immigrants began to arrive in the 1930s and 40s and of course did well. But it, it, the Ados black community would not be here if it weren't for conflict in the past.
0: Professor Boyd, you have six minutes for your rebuttal. The first point that I would sort of like to respond to is that the issue, the fact that Soul's essay is generally accurate because of sort of the broader themes of, you know, kind of the West ending slavery or the idea that slavery was a global phenomena. In okay. addition to the fact that things such as the West endings, or sorry, not the West Ending slavery. I'll get back to that in a minute, but the, the existence of slavery as a global phenomena. Not only has that been written about pretty extensively by scholars, but I would argue that it, it's fairly well baked into the culture at this point. You know, I think in pop culture we sort of know this. Like um for example, Spartacus was such an iconic movie that it's been remade on a number of occasions. You know, it was a miniseries or, or something a while back. I think now they have it as sort of like a nc-17 sort of game of thrones for historians type show which sort of reflects the fact that people know that slavery largely existed in the roman world uh to look at the example of sort of uh african slavery um in the i can't speak to the novel roots i have not read the novel but the tv miniseries both the 70s version and the uh, 2016 remake both depict african traders as selling other africans into slavery and this actually ties in with the fact, so I went to the most liberal high school probably in the city of Atlanta, and we we learned in our freshman year history textbook that African leaders and traders sold other Africans into slavery. So, so I would I would say that it's not as suppressed as Dr. Soule claims that it is. Now, with regards to the slavery being a global phenomena and the West ending slavery, what we've already discussed, and I could get into this with other societies, but just for the sake of brevity, I will say that, you know, as we've discussed with a lot of Native American tribes the hereditary nature of slavery is something that hasn't been common to all societies. And not only has it not been common to all societies, but there are actually instances in which it's gotten introduced into not sort of non-white societies by white arrivals. Uh, So for example, with regards to native Americans, uh, a lot of uh, the tribes in the Southeast were actually uh, sort of introduced to slave trading by uh, sorry not slave trading but to a hereditary perpetual black chattel slavery by white people as, as when they were trying to sort of assimilate into the white culture and some of the tribes that wouldn't assimilate and wouldn't sort of knuckle under to the united states some of these uh, communities you know certain seminal communities that refused to that refused to knuckle under this would actually provide shelter to runaway slaves and this is one of the reasons that the u.s government you know under people like you know uh sort of in the Madison Monroe era, you know, people like Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren fought the Seminoles so aggressively. Uh, and with regard to Haiti being symbolic, I will say that, this, uh, the, you know, not only was the symbolism rather important because it inspired generations of abolitionists, but it also, Haiti's relative weakness and their inability to uh, block blockade the the coast of West Africa to stop the slave trade is partly because countries like France, you know, so, the you know, George Washington tried to stop, tried to suppress the slave rebellion, you know, help the French suppress it. He couldn't do that. France basically tried to do everything it could to impoverish Haiti, basically because the French government couldn't forgive Haiti for having essentially humiliated the French and driven the slaveholders out. Now, with regards to, I want to talk here now with the time that I have left about the sort of uh, issue of overall rates versus gaps and the issue of Black people being better off due to slavery. So the problem, there are two issues with saying that the overall number of Black out-of-wedlock births and non-nuclear homes is more important than racial disparities. And I will will point out here that the non-nuclear home versus out-of-wedlock birth rates is actually a very important distinction because a couple could get married six months after their baby is born and a couple could get married, but if the father deserts when the kid is five, it, it's still going to have a pretty negative impact on the kid's life. So, if you look at the numbers, uh, we've already talked about the numbers under slavery, and I've talked about the ratios post-slavery, but to talk about the numbers uh, after slavery, um, the it's pretty consistently true that up up to 1960, about 35 percent of black children by the age of 14 had one or both parents absent. Uh, and so, and it's also worth noting that. The black out, of lock, black out of wedlock birth rate and non-nuclear household rates already being so much higher is part of why the rate is so high today because if the black out of wedlock birth rate had been the same as the white rate pre-1965, it would be under 10% today, If it, assuming that it had grown at the same rate because um, the black out of wedlock birth rate, the statistic I usually hear is that it's about tripled since the 1960s. But if it had been the same as the uh, white out of wedlock birth rate prior to 1960, then, or prior to the 1970s, then if it had tripled, it would have been under 10%. Now, the argument about whites not having offered Africans free passage to America, the, the argument that that can't be used to say that black people are better off from slavery because it's unrealistic fundamentally fails because the argument about black people being left in Africa. Also requires us to assume that white people would have done something that they were not willing to do in in real history, which is to say, it would have required that they not engage in the African slave trade. So you can't say it's you can't say it's unrealistic to imagine an alternate scenario in one case, but unreal but realistic to imagine it in the other.
2: Professor Riley, you now have the last word on this debate. You've got three minutes, and then after that, I. I'd like to ask you both uh, a couple of questions. So why don't we give you your. Sure, five. sure. I,
1: I think my take throughout the the conversation or the debate has been uh, pretty consistent. I, I think my opponent's making some intelligent specific points. I think the, the thrust of the essay survives pretty well because their responses to those points. I mean, sort of for the last kind of three minutes here, taking these block by block. I mean, when the claim is made that most non-academic Americans are aware of the global history of slavery, that may be true in some very broad sense, i.e. they're aware that um, there were African traders. I don't think that more than 2% of non-academic Americans, and I am guessing here, but could name the Barbary slave trade, for example, which enslaved 2,000 primarily European individuals. Uh, I don't think that there are a very large number of non-academic Americans who know who Tipu Tip is. I mean, I think that there is a very specific directed way in which this is generally taught. Uh, The most recent textbook I looked at that discussed the Aztecs didn't mention human sacrifice. And that probably has something to do with that sort of 90 to 10 political slant in academia. And I think what Sol's doing is at an upper end public intellectual level pointing this out. Uh, and again, moving into the the hereditary or brutal nature of U.S. slavery, good good point. But there's obviously a response. The examples of slavery in other developed societies, as opposed to North American Native American tribes. We're very much along the same model. I mean, if you look at Zan slavery in the Muslim world, this, this wasn't something that lasted for one generation after which descendants then moved into society. And again, I don't think most Americans could name the Zanj wars. I don't think one person in 10 could. So, you know, our, our equal rivals in you know, the powerful Muslim nations gave the world most of its names for slaves. I mean, the Arabic term for black person, Abid, means slave. Um, the term for a South Central European Slav or Slava means slave. This was a practice. Those are the two words used globally for slave. I mean, this was a practice that went on for a very long time in a hereditary fashion. Most of the and I'll use quotes here, civilized world um, in terms of some of the, the technical quantitative points about the black out of wedlock birth rate. You know, I think that there's no doubt whatsoever that that transition from 9% to 70% is to some extent more significant than that difference between 9% and 4%. I, I will say also, I don't understand the argument that if the black out of wedlock birth rate had increased at the same rate as the white out of wedlock birth rate, it would be 10%. I mean, it would be what the white out of wedlock birth rate is which is, I believe, 37.4%. Last I looked at governmental data that includes Caucasian Hispanics. We've seen this increase in the white community as well. If you if you view this as a problem, it's not specifically a black problem. And I, I do view this as a problem. So finally, the, the most controversial claim soul makes, this is why we've been discussing it, maybe this argument that black people are better off in America because of slavery. To me, there's a difference between positing you know, a one step hypothetical, i.e. had white and black nations not clashed in the past and had black people not come to America, would black people be better off in Africa? On the one hand, on the other, assuming a hypothetical where black people are brought here, never enslaved and trained to succeed. I think the second is very, very different.
2: So thank you both for a very uh, excellent debate. I have a, a couple of questions for you. My major question for you, and I think a lot of our listeners will have this question as well after reading Sowell's essay and after listening to this debate is, should I feel guilt and embarrassment about my country's slave trading owning past or should I feel pride and self-respect that my country ended the international practice of slavery? Or there's a third possibility. Am I entitled to feel neither shame nor pride in anything that happened before I was even born? And I think this is the fundamental question about this issue of slavery. And I'd like to hear how each of
0: you answers this question. What I do want to kind of say here um, with regards to uh, sort of guilt versus pride versus neither, I don't think that anybody should feel guilt about something that they didn't do. However, I do think that it's perfectly appropriate to feel a sense of disgust at what the United States did on slavery. Now, we can take pride in the people, you know, the abolitionists, for example. Although Soule generally criticizes them, I mean, he's easier on Robert E. Lee than he is on William Lloyd Garrison. But we can take pride in abolitionists uh, who fought slavery, and we can take pride in, you know, even politicians like Abe Lincoln who fought slavery. And I think we can take some pride in the uh, in the United States doing things to promote emancipation abroad. Although we also then have to feel a sense of shame in, for example, invading Haiti in the 1910s and uh instituting forced labor programs that left thousands of people dead. But um I would say that in general, the appropriate response is not shame, but I do think there needs to be a sense of uh disgust, an acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, and also an acknowledgement of sort of the good things that some American individuals or or many American individuals did to fight slavery here and abroad.
2: But right. say you, Professor Riley.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think the answer is complex.
1: First of all, I don't feel anything whatsoever um, morally related to the actions of people who died dozens, if not hundreds of years before I was born. But I I think from from a moral standpoint, I think that it is appropriate to feel a mix of emotions. I mean, obviously, most people, when they read about life on a slave plantation in, say, Georgia in the 1830s, are going to be disgusted. And they're going to think that happened in this country. That's awful. At the same time, I think most people, when they read about the Union breaking the Confederacy, or again, the USA and Britain ending the global slave trade, are going to think, wow, that's magnificent. And both are appropriate. Just as the study of World War II would include an understanding of the incredible bravery of the troops, but also the great depravity that humans are capable of. I think that a third essential element here, however, is context. And that's why I do view the soul essay as so useful. The needed context here is that, again, virtually every nation in the world, Britain, France, Haiti until emancipation, the Dominican Republic to some extent afterward via the mulatto planters, Certainly the great Muslim societies, the many stable African societies like Benin, all of these entities practiced slavery. So it's absolutely appropriate to look back at this era and think all of these people were savages in our terms, doing things like not letting women participate in political practice and enslaving other people that we consider the nadir of behavior today. Um, I condemn all of them, but I do not condemn us uniquely. A a bit rambly there, but I I think that is why it's important to understand that these practices were global. Very often in the USA today, and I'm in modern, I believe we both are, but I'm in modern sort of left-leaning, decently ranked academia. And we we very, very often focus on the sins of the USA and sometimes Britain almost exclusively. And it's worth swinging a bit around the globe and asking, well, what were our rivals in China? or uh, Persia, or Turkey, you know what what as those countries were known at the time. But what were they doing at the same time? And that answer adds some clarity. So perhaps a bit of pride, perhaps a bit of shame, I, I think more importantly than either, an understanding of the reality of the world at that time, which is fairly disturbing to many modern Americans, just as our factory farming and probably things like OnlyFans would be to those people.
2: Okay, my last question for you both before we end this conversation is... If the subject of reparations weren't somewhat on the popular mind, this whole slavery discussion would be a purely sort of academic intellectual exercise. But given that people are talking about reparations for slavery, uh, where do each of you come out on the subject of reparations for slavery, Professor Boyd?
0: Okay, so in the so I, we have to distinguish here between sort of. Um, what my view morally and philosophically is versus what my view is from sort of a practical standpoint. So on the one hand, I think morally and philosophically, obviously there should be reparations to descendants of slaves uh, for reasons that I've discussed. I do believe that slavery left African Americans today much worse off than they would have been had they not been enslaved, and I do think the distinction about the fact that they came to the United States, how they were brought here and what happened after they were brought here, all of these things, you have to distinguish between those three things. And when you look at especially how being enslaved after they were brought here versus being set free on arrival affected African-Americans, and it's very clear, there's very demonstrable harm that's still being felt today. And I certainly feel that the US government as an institution does owe the descendants of slaves pretty hefty compensation for that. Now, from a practical standpoint, there are a lot of issues of trying to implement it, such as the difficulty of tracing slave ancestry, the question of whether, okay, does this mean other groups that have been wronged and, and possibly denied mater- material gains in certain ways? Uh, for example, Native Americans, um, gay people who have been historically subjected to uh, discriminatory tax pl- tax codes, things like that. It begs the question of, do all of these groups, uh, then should they get reparations also and then you also run into the the simple fact of the matter, which is that reparations are so unpopular compared to a lot of other reforms I support, like uh, ending racial profiling and even things like um, defending affirmative action. You know, there are a lot of people that are pro affirmative action, anti reparations. That I do worry about, sort of the political fallout from Democrats pushing that. You know, I, I do suspect, you know, that in uh, 2019, that when Democrats were holding hearings on reparations. That it was largely because, while I do believe that they cared about African Americans and cared about African Americans' uh, rights and and everything like that, I do think that they held those hearings partly because they knew Republicans controlled the Senate and the executive branch and that the bill wouldn't pass. I, th- you know, so I, I think that the sheer unpopularity of reparations, along with the difficulty in implementing it, makes me conflicted. But certainly, from a moral and philosophical standpoint. I believe reparations are absolutely appropriate for former, for uh, descendants of former slaves. And I uh, certainly, if somebody could give me sort of a concrete policy plan for it that I think is feasible, then it would be something that I would wholeheartedly endorse. Professor Riley.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that the first point that we're still debating here is the establishment of a harm. So, I mean, bluntly, I don't think there was, there would be any chance in say 1790 of Black warriors from rival societies having been brought to the USA and then set free. I mean, and we, we've gone back and forth. and I think both made points here, but I, I don't think that would be something on the table. So you first have to show that black people Black people alive today are, in fact, worse off than we would have been were it not for, say, the slave trade through 1808. And I think comparing relative incomes, that's actually fairly difficult to do. But that said, we've already we've already hashed over this ground. You might be surprised to hear that I actually don't have a strong moral, if you will. That's not a word I use a lot in politics. Objection to reparations. Um, We've made reparatory payments many times in the past, Japanese, Americans, so on. Um, I think that there are two problems here, one of which my opponent outlined quite well, that we're going to have to deal with if this ever becomes an idea, though. The first is that you can't have reparations and affirmative action, right? So we've already set up a formal, if a bit half-assed structure of compensating minorities very specifically for past harms. Um, I mean, I have a faculty and until recently an executive role at a state level university. I mean, it is no secret that there is going to be a massive advantage, sometimes on the order of 100 or more points on the test. If you're applying to most academic institutions, the equivalent of many Fortune 500 jobs, et cetera, government contracts, minority set-asides as a person of color. So will that system be done away with in exchange for some kind of reparations program? And is the reparations program likely to work better? There's absolutely no chance of the average working-class white American voting for or voting for candidates who vote for reparations followed by a 50-year continuation of affirmative action. So that's one of those practical, pragmatic considerations. The second, when I debate this on campuses, I always say there are three issues of reparations, who gets, which is fairly easy to figure out. I do think there are ways to trace Edo's ancestry. Who gives, which is a real issue. I mean, do Hispanic Americans pay reparations to Blacks? And most importantly, who's next? So there's a 0% chance that if a reparations policy is implemented in any effective manner, that Irishmen, Native American Indians, gay Americans, we now know this is a largely hereditary condition, like a condition, state of being, you know, women who couldn't vote until the 20s. There's no chance that these people, powerful organized groups like NOW and AIM, don't come forward and make similar demands. And you, you find, like, I'm part Black, part Native, and part Irish. So I'm I'm curious about what sort of payments I'd get, what sort of payments I'd make. I'm doing pretty well in terms of tax bracket. Only when we work those two issues out to cut off the kind of thread of dialogue here, will a reparations deal be possible. We'll see if that happens. We'll see if both parties can come to the table neutrally and talk like adults and make that happen. I wouldn't bet $5 on it.
2: Thank you both very much. for a very, very spirited debate. I've learned a ton and I hope our listeners have as well. And uh, I welcome you both back on the show uh, at some time in the near
3: future. Thank you both.